Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the People Processes Podcast, where we dive into the updates, interviews, and yes, processes that will help your organization thrive. My name is Rami Alijil, and my goal is to help HR managers and business owners create an environment where their people are their organization's competitive advantage. Today, we're looking at some new survey results and information about open workspaces, short-term incentive bonuses, so small bonuses that influence short-term behavior, and background checks, which are a super important compliance tool, but also like really important just for the long-term success of your business. So let's dive right in. <clears throat> the EBSA has released an array of guidance on the Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act, MHPAEA, including proposed frequently asked questions, an enforcement fact sheet, a self-compliance tool, and a revised draft disclosure template. In addition, the Department of Labor has released a report to Congress that outlines its current implementation and enforcement actions in furtherance of the Mental Health Parity Act, which we'll just call that MHPAEA, Mental Health Parity Act. So, first up, let's talk about <clears throat> open workspaces. This is under workers value a sense of community in the workplace. About half, 47% of part or full-time employees value a community atmosphere in the place where they work, according to a new survey by Clutch, a B2B research ratings and reviews company. By the way, that survey is linked on our website at peopleprocesses.com. You can click on it, read more information. The number increases to 55% for millennial workers aged 18 to 34. These findings suggest that workspaces, including traditional offices, co-working spaces, coffee shops, and other public work areas, benefit from finding ways to bring their young employees together. While Generation X and Baby Boomers also value communities, they don't pro community, they don't prioritize it at the same level as their younger co-workers. This is likely because millennials are the first generation to grow up with the internet, says Laurel Cummings, a makespacer, a makespace researcher, and member of Building Momentum, a science and engineering consulting company. Cummings says that the internet is a connective tool that allows people to create projects of previously unimaginable scale and reach. Quote, the internet has brought this idea of multidisciplinary work to a whole new level, end quote. Kafir Shaked, senior architect lead at WeWork, a co-working network, agrees that making workspaces that encourage communi community building interactions, such as stopping to chat, <clears throat> sorry, I have hiccups, such as stopping to chat, collaborating on projects, or teaching new skills is key. Quote, when designing the community spaces, I'm thinking about the spontaneous conversations that might happen, Shakit said. Putting community building at the forefront of workspace design is critical. The top quality that employees want their physical surroundings to be is pleasant and comfortable. More than three out of five office workers, 61%, want their workspaces to look and feel good. When workers have access to space they find agreeable and cozy, they're able to concentrate better and think more positively about the work they do, according to the survey. Bottom line, put some time into thinking about how your office is laid out, how people are going to interact, and try to encourage spontaneous conversation so that a sense of community is built. Okay? By the way, this is a side note, not from Clutch or anything, but... That is an interesting thing when you think about our more distributed networks of home-based um, employees nowadays and how you continue to develop that sense of community since it is so important for the success of your employees. Put some time and thought into that. We may do an episode on it. 
Okay, next up, short-term incentives. They're no longer just for executives. Short-term cash incentives continue to dominate the incentive pay landscape at both private companies and nonprofit government organizations, according to research released on May 8, uh, just a few days ago, by World at Work in partnership with Vivient Consulting. Quote, spending on short-term incentive, STIs, increased modestly at private companies from 2015 to 2017, which reflects the tight labor market and competition for talent, end quote. That was Bonnie Schindler, partner and co-founder of Vivian Consulting. On the nonprofit side, quote, U.S. nonprofit organizations continue to make significant use of short-term cash incentives to motivate and reward employees. Long-term incentives are still a little-used compensation element, but prevalence increased modestly in 2017 and may signal an emerging trend, Schindler said. As for private companies, the research reveals spending on short-term incentives increased to 6% of operating profit at median from 5% in prior years. The prevalence of exempt salaried employees and non-exempt salary or hourly employees included in annual incentive plans increased in 2017. The biggest jump incurred for non-exempt employees, your hourly employees. Approximately two-thirds of non-exempt employees are now eligible for annual incentives, up from only half in 2015. That's a huge jump. The majority of respondents consider their annual incentive plans to be only moderately effective, though, with planned communication, the level of discretion, goal setting, and the risk-reward trade-off noted as areas for improvement. That's private companies. At non-profit and government findings, nonprofit and government organizations favor simplicity by offering a limited number of short-term incentive plans. Of the respondents, more than 75% reported having three or fewer short-term incentive plans in place. By far the most common type of short-term incentive plan at nonprofit and government organizations continues to be an annual incentive plan. However, prevalence of AIPs dropped to 77% in 2017 from 86% in 2015. So, sh- Annual incentive plans have gone down, but short-term incentive plans have gone up. So keep that in mind, um, that that it may be something you can do more often, uh, but a smaller scale. This is all from World at Work, by the way, and the survey is available on our website at peopleprocesses.com. Last kind of update for us is about employment background checks. Liability for negligent hiring is, quote, alive and well, but can be reduced by comprehensive employment background screening, said Deborah Keller, president of Health Care Compliance Association. Uh, She did a webinar entitled Background Screening, What You Don't Know Can Hurt Your Organization. In addition to describing the benefits for background screening, Keller, vice president of compliance at Reference Services, Inc., outlined the components of a quality background check. Benefits of background check. One benefits of background checks is an increase in applicant quality because the screening discourages applicants who are trying to hide something. They could also help prevent violence in the workplace. 1.5 million workers are assaulted in the workplace each year at a loss totaling of 55 million a year in lost wages alone. Background checks can also help reduce employee theft, which Keller described as rampant and growing. She said that 43% of workers admit that they have stolen from their employers, and 70% of people who will steal will re-offend. Or people who, 70% of people who have stolen will re-offend. Negligent hiring. Negligent hiring is the failure of the employer to investigate an applicant's work experience, character, criminal history, and other relevant information before hiring the employee. Employers are responsible for both what they know and what they should have known about their employees. 
Keller noted that employers lose about 75% of negligent hiring cases, and average settlements in negligent hiring lawsuits average seven figures. Knowing that a potential employee was involved in a criminal activity such as drug abuse, theft, or violent behaviors allows an employer to determine if the applicant is suited for the job and whether he or she poses a potential threat to other employees. If you go back an episode or three to our safety in the workplace, uh, we talk about how the employer is is responsible for creating a safe workplace, and that includes um, the actions taken by other employees. So I think the title of that episode is like, "Am I liable if my if one employee punches the other?" And the answer is yes, especially if it's a case of negligent hiring. If there were things you could have known or should have known that would perhaps have uh, precluded you from putting the other employee in the situation where they get punched in the face. So to minimize the risk, you need a comprehensive background check. The following should be included in an employer's background screening package. A nationwide criminal search, which Keller described as the foundation for all comprehensive background checks. A social security trace to ensure that the applicant record belongs to that person. A manual county courthouse search for seven years of applicant address history former employment verification, and education verification, if applicable. Keller emphasized the importance of doing a manual county search. While a nationwide criminal report captures convictions only, county records provide the most up-to-date information and include pending, dismissed, and deferred charges. In addition, many counties do not report up to a nationwide data source, including Shelby County, where we're based. She warned against instant county data, uh, which is not a real search and not guaranteed to be up-to-date. In addition, employers should not only rely should not rely on fingerprinting as the sole source of background screening. Keller noted that the FBI databases were not intended to be used for background screening and are highly incomplete and inaccurate. So, while fingerprinting can be part of it, it's not the sole it cannot be the sole source. So when you're looking for a background screening firm, we use one, um, National Crime Search. It, it follows these requirements. Uh, if you want a referral, let us know. We'll be happy to send you along to them. But these are the broad checks you need to look when you're looking at your firm. Criminal records come from many sources, and each background screening firm chooses its own source. The number of record searches vary widely among firms. For example, some contain sex offender registry information and other watch lists, while others do not. If you're paying for a cheap background check, you're getting substandard results because they take time, said Keller. She recommended that an employer ask about a firm's data sources. One, is the firm nationally accredited by the National Association of Professional Background Screeners? Are they a member of the Fair Credit Reporting? Are they? I'm sorry. Are are all team members members of the Fair Credit Reporting Act? And are they certified? How many records are searched, and how many data sources are used? And request a nationwide criminal source list as well. The firm should perform quote order review, a process of reviewing criminal records, ensuring the records belong to that applicant, and ensure that the employer is seeing only those records it is legally able to see. So those three things all need to be in place. Ask your background screening company if they do those things. If they can't answer, then find a new one. Compliance problems. The past several years have been a hotbed of activity with legal actions against employers related to non-compliant background screening practices. Under 15 U.S.C. 1681, the FCRA, the Fair Credit Reporting Act, the applicant authorization form cannot be attached to the application, and it must not contain any waiver or identification or indemnification language. The employer must also include a summary of consumer rights as well as specific forms for certain states. So it can't just be something you use the application for. Before taking any adverse action based on a consumer report, the employer must mail the report, summary of consumer rights, and an adverse action letter to the applicant. After five days, if there's no dispute, the employer must send a post-adverse action letter. So if you get a background check back and it says, you know, 
and you, you determine that that's the reason not to hire them. You have a pro you need to have a process to follow in order to maintain compliance. While convictions stay on a person's record forever, several states impose time restrictions. Uh, example, an employer cannot consider convictions beyond seven years. Under certain circumstances, an employer might consider information on an arrest with no conviction as underlying conduct, which you need to have very specific reasons. By the way, this whole thing was written by Sheila Lynch Afril, JDMA. Uh, link on our website to her information if you'd like to uh, ask her additional questions. Check us out at peopleprocesses.com if you want to kind of get this in a list format or read it out. Uh, it's pretty useful sometimes to have this as a guideline. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Rami Alijil, and I hope this information was helpful to you. Go out there, get your work done, and have a great day.